We started this study a year and a half ago, just I think a week before COVID hit, and we barely got going, and uh, then everything got put on hold. So we're going to start over again. Uh, Today's uh, lesson will be one we did before. because we do have some new folks, and uh, so, and the odds of most people remembering what was said a year and a half ago are pretty slim. Uh, so we'll we'll start over. What I probably ah oh, here comes the extension cord. Good. Uh, what I probably won't do that I did last time. Last time on the second uh, session, I did a an overview of the whole book of Colossians. I basically taught the whole book in in one uh, class uh, just to kind of give everybody a heads up on where the book's going because, you know, the, the thing is people always want to get down to, you know, what's this saying that's going to, you know, where's the practical part in this book? Where's the part that's, that's going to tell me how, how to live? And, you know, a lot of people get kind of uh, uh, a little discouraged at the beginning because there's a lot of this theology uh, and people say, I want to get to the practical portion. But that theology is practical. And it is incredibly foundational. And so last time, like I did this overview to show in one study how everything does ultimately come over to the, the practical side of things, how we are to live. Uh, I'm not going to necessarily do that again this time. Uh, we'll just uh, start, uh, I'll, I'll introduce the, the study this week, and then we'll... Uh, begin to get into the text next week. But this first portion of the book is very foundational. Where a lot of Christians really struggle is, you know, they jump over to what they consider the practical portion of the book. They see what the Christian life is intended to look like. But they really don't understand the provisions for that life and so they just they try to produce it and they try year in year out you know unsuccessfully and they get discouraged and a lot of it is that they've skipped over the foundation on which that Christian life's got to be built and before we went to Ireland I I uh, did construction for a while. I was a job superintendent for a uh, for the residential portion of a construction company. And you know, people when they hired us to build a house, they wanted to see that house. <laughs> they wanted it, you know, something they could see and, and and begin to imagine how they could live in it. But it took a while before you got to that place. And what we did initially was incredibly important to ending up with a structure that was not only usable, but was going to stand uh, up over time. You know, we spent time uh, working on the, 
the site, making sure that the ground was stable enough to support the house. And then we spent time building a foundation that was solid enough to hold the house. You know, a lot went into construction before we ever got to putting the house on it. And all that was important. And the average person walking up and looking didn't necessarily see how significant some of the stuff we were doing was. But it was incredibly significant. And Paul, who wrote Colossians, is a master builder. (laughs) Paul spends an incredible amount of time laying the foundation on which he's going to build. And we do no justice to his writings if we just skim over the foundation and try to jump into, okay, here's how I'm supposed to live now. We will get to that. (laughs) But it's going to be a few weeks out. Because we're going to do the best we can to really uh, look at the foundation that Paul lays for us. A foundation that if we really begin to understand it, will set the stage for, you know, a victorious Christian life. Now, let me have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started here. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Lord, what a privilege we have. Lord, I think of the many centuries when the average Christian did not have a copy of your word in his hands. When scrolls were hard to come by. And then, initially, if you didn't read Hebrew and Greek, or later Latin, you couldn't even understand the scriptures. Lord, we have such easy access to your word. And yet, sometimes, Lord, oftentimes, we don't really take advantage of what we have. Lord, I thank you for just the rich truths that are found in your word truths that tell us about you who you are what you're like truths that show us the Lord Jesus Christ not only as our savior but as our very life as our source of all things and Lord uh, your word is a source of those truths that can transform us Lord, I look forward to being able to get into the book of Colossians together here over the next uh, number of weeks. I just pray, Lord, that I would be sensitive to your Spirit's direction. Lord, that I would not speak a word that is not being guided by Him. And Lord, I know that my words are not going to impact anybody. It's going to be the Holy Spirit working in their hearts and lives. And Lord, I just pray that you would prepare each of us each week. And Lord, that you would open our eyes, each of us, to the truths you have prepared us to learn. And that in the long haul, it will move us closer to your goal of conforming us to the image of your dear Son. whose precious name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, what I'm going to do today is just spend some time looking at some background information regarding uh, this letter. Um, you know, the New Testament was written um, about 2,000 years ago. And, you know, culturally things are a bit different today than it was in that day. And, you know, when we get into Colossians, Colossians is a letter. It's a letter written from somebody to somebody. You know, if you just picked up a letter that had been written, started reading, it would help if you knew something about the author. It would help if you knew something about the recipient. It might help for you to know why the letter was even written. What prompted it? And, you know, whenever we begin to study a a book of the Bible or an epistle, it helps for us to back off and take a little bit of time uh, to look at who the author is, who the recipient is, and anything that we perhaps can understand about the recipient, and particularly about what prompted this writing, what brought it uh, to pass. And so we want to do that today. Now, the author identifies himself in in the opening of the letter as the Apostle Paul. And I'm sure somebody has challenged that authorship over the years because somebody always challenges everything. Uh, But it's probably been one of the less challenged. Uh, Most of Paul's writings have not been as heavily challenged as perhaps Peter's. Uh, uh, Again, Paul wrote enough that we recognize his style. There's a lot of things that uh, are clues to the fact that, that he actually wrote something. And so I'm not going to spend time looking at arguments for his authorship. I'm going to take it at face value that when he says he, uh, in, in the opening of this letter that he wrote it, uh, that he did. And so, especially in conservative circles, I I don't know of anybody who really debates the authorship of this letter. Uh, What is debated a bit more is the date and place of writing. Now, when you get over into chapter 4, verse 10, Paul refers to Aristarchus as his fellow prisoner, which has led to a general acceptance uh, that this letter was written while Paul was in prison. But there's debate over where he was imprisoned, and that has a lot to do with the timing of this letter. Now, there are three primary views as to where Paul was imprisoned at this time. The first is that he was imprisoned in Caesarea, marked by the little arrow, kind of down to the bottom right there. Um, And of course, his Caesarean um, uh, imprisonment took place after the riot in Jerusalem where uh, there was an attempt to kill him and then they ended up moving him from Jerusalem to Caesarea and he he was there for a period of time. Now, uh, those who hold to uh, this imprisonment uh, really do not 
uh, have a strong support for it. And there's a couple of uh, reasons that speak against him writing this letter during that time. Uh, and both of these reasons revolve around his reference to an individual by the name of Onesimus, who was a runaway slave. Paul makes reference to him in this letter. Uh, uh, his letter to Philemon actually uh, revolves around Onesimus. Um, and you find out in this letter that, of course, Onesimus uh, had a relationship with Paul during this imprisonment. Now, it's highly unlikely then that this took place in Caesarea because, first of all, it's unlikely that uh, Onesimus would have fled uh, to a small town like Caesarea uh, as a runaway slave, uh, you know, anybody who grew up in a small town setting in this country, no, a small town is not a good place to hide. Uh, everybody knows everybody and, every, you know, if somebody's from out of town, everybody knows it. And they start asking questions. And uh, Caesarea was not a great metropolis or anything. And so a runaway slave would have been pretty quickly recognized in that situation. Also, from what we know historically, the nature of Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea was not one that would have given Onesimus free access to him. Paul was locked away in Caesarea. Uh, and so people couldn't just come and go and couldn't have a close relationship with him. So it's highly unlikely that this was written from Caesarea, which would have put the writing of the letter fairly early, uh, but it, uh, there's no real strong evidence for that. Others have held to a, an imprisonment in in Ephesus, and this one, this view is wrought with problems, not the least of which there is no historical or biblical evidence of Paul ever being imprisoned in Ephesus. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, it's one of those things, well, let's just pull a, a city out of the, uh, you know, out of the hat and we'll say Paul was imprisoned there. Those who hold to that view do so because of the proximity to, uh, to Colossae. Colossae sat about 100 miles east of Ephesus. And so uh, they, want to, they say, well, it would have been a realistic distance uh, for uh, Onesimus to flee. And uh, they cite the fact that in Philemon verse 22, Paul asked Philemon to <coughs> prepare him lodging, uh, suggesting that he intends to come there when he's uh, released. Um, and uh, so they kind of say, well, sounds like he probably was in Ephesus. Now these arguments are weak uh, for holding to an imprisonment we have no record of. So I tend to throw that one out the, the window. So this brings us to the third option, which is Rome. And in support of that uh, view 
is the fact that we do know Paul was imprisoned in Rome. In fact, he was imprisoned there twice. We also have the long tradition of the church who from really some of the very earliest days have held uh, Rome to be the location from which he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so, you know, you go back like even to the first century and the second century, those who lived very close to the time of Paul, they hold to the fact that Paul was in Rome. And really... I know it's a huge distance for Onesimus to have fled because it's 1,200 miles from Colossae. But a runaway slave would tend to want to get as far away from his master as he could. Plus, Rome was the best place to hide. It was a huge city. People were coming and going all the time. Uh, you could very easily hide among the masses and never be recognized. And so uh, there's uh, every reason to, to think that it would be a good place for Onesimus to flee to. Plus we know that during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, it was a house arrest which meant that he had guards watching him, but he had his own place where he lived. And people could come and go. Uh, it would have afforded him uh, the opportunity uh, to have spent a good bit of time with Onesimus. Onesimus could have come for a visit anytime he wanted. Uh, that would not have been true in Paul's second imprisonment, which uh, was in the Mamertine dungeon, and which was uh, much more restrictive. So, based on tradition, based on uh, just the whole setting there in Rome, uh, there's every reason to go with the fact that Paul wrote this letter from Rome and we're going to uh, be using that approach as we move forward. Now, if he did write it from Rome, that puts the, the date of the book somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D. Now, we do, again, know from internal evidence from the books of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon <clears throat> that all three of them were delivered <coughs> excuse me by an individual by the name of Tychicus so it's highly likely that they were all written about the same time again bear in mind that Colossae is 1200 miles from uh, Rome you don't just jump on a jet and fly there uh, it involves a bit of Overland travel, it uh, involves a lot of travel by sea, it's a uh, long and treacherous journey, it's highly unlikely that Tychicus would have taken the letter to Ephesus and come back and picked up the letter to Colossae and gone over and come back and picked up the letter to Philemon and gone over maybe not come back uh, but uh, you know it's most likely that all three of these letters were written within a very short time of each other and were carried by the same individual at the same time 
Um, now, in this letter, Paul does not show the anticipation uh, of release that he shows in his letter to the church in Philippi, which tends to say that this is uh, written earlier than the Philippian letter. Because by the time he writes to the church in Philippi, he's been in Rome for a while. His, you know, he, uh, his, his anticipation of, of standing before uh, Caesar and being released is, is pretty strong. When he writes to the Colossians, uh, he really doesn't seem to have that kind of a sense that his imprisonment is about to soon come to an end. Now, when it comes to the recipient of this letter, again, we know from the context of the letter that it is the city of Colossae, uh, which is in this blue circle. Uh, it uh, was a city of Asia Minor. Uh, it was, as I, I think said earlier, approximately a hundred miles east of Ephesus. Uh, it uh, sat in the Lycus Valley, uh, which is located in what is present-day Turkey. It stood at the head of a gorge um, where the Lycus and the Meander rivers uh, united. Uh, it was located about 13 miles from the city of Heropolis and about 10 miles from the city of Laodicea. Um, you know, when it comes to really understanding a lot about Colossae, we have more difficulty with this city probably than any uh, of uh, the New Testament recipients. And that's largely because there are not any real significant external historical documents that really talk about Colossae. And secondly, uh, Colossae is one of the few significant New Testament sites that has never been excavated uh, by archaeologists. Uh, there hasn't been one dig uh, done there. You know, if we're studying Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, we know a lot about Ephesus. Ephesus has been highly excavated. There's a lot of writings dealing with Ephesus. We know what the, the religious uh, setting was in Ephesus. And that helps us when we're studying Ephesians, when we're studying 1 Timothy, and when we're studying 2 Timothy, because Timothy was in Ephesus at the time Paul wrote to him. And so, uh, you know, understanding that, uh, a lot about that city uh, answers some of the questions at times why Paul said certain things. We, we know a lot of what was being faced. Again, when it comes to Corinth, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we know a lot about Corinth. Been a lot of archaeological work done there. There are a lot of uh, writings that deal with Corinth. We know uh, so much about the religious atmosphere, the cultural atmosphere. We know a lot about what the church faced 
in, in Corinth. Um, Philippi, we know a bit about Philippi. Uh, again, excavations, uh, writings, we know a bit about Philippi. Rome, we know a whole lot about. You know, Rome was the center of the ancient world. And we have all sorts of information about Rome. But Colossae, we know almost nothing about. We do know that, in it, that it was renowned for its textiles. And that they're actually, uh, uh, were actually, uh, they were noted for um, their wool making and dyeing. In fact, there was a, a, a dye that originated in that area known as Colossinus. Uh, which they made from the cyclamen flower that that grew in, uh, grew in grew in that area. We also do know that earlier in its history, it was a city of some prominence. But by the time Paul wrote this letter, uh, that prominence had been lost, and Laodicea had become a much more significant. Uh, city and that was largely due to the fact that you know the trade route uh, the Roman trade route had gone through Laodicea you know it's a lot like in this country back in the uh, late 60s early and mid 70s when the interstate city was built uh, I mean interstate uh, highway system was built you know, before the interstate, there were towns across this country that were, were at times pretty significant. And there were other towns that weren't. But when the interstate went in, if it bypassed a significant town, that town became less and less significant. Because the traffic all mixed it, missed it. And then you have other little towns <coughs> that had never been much. But now the, the interstate's going right by them. And so that town began to grow in prominence. And that's kind of what played out <coughs> between uh, Laodicea and Colossae. You know, back before uh, Rome became uh, such a dominant power... And all roads led to Rome. Colossae had been pretty significant. But then Rome came in. And uh, the Roman highway uh, went right past Laodicea. It bypassed uh, Colossae by about <coughs> 10 miles. And 10 miles was a, a lot more of a distance in that day than it is now. And so Colossae began to kind of dry up at that point. And not too many years after Paul penned this letter, uh, the region was rocked by a pretty severe earthquake. And Colossae as a town never really recovered from it. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, the population of Colossae... Thank you, I appreciate that. if I keep from pouring it in my computer. <laughs> um, 
The population at Colossae, uh, of Colossae at the time Paul wrote this letter was made up primarily of Greeks and Phrygians with a large Jewish population also. I love Phrygians. I always used to tell my students it sounds like something from Star Trek. You know, there's a Phrygian warship off the port bow or something like that. Uh, but... Uh, uh, it, it was just a, a, a group, uh, I guess, more like a tribal group that was very significant in that region. But during the days of Antiochus III, he moved 2,000 Jewish families from Babylon and Mesopotamia into that area. And by the time Paul wrote this letter, it's been estimated there was probably about 50,000 Jews. And so as we get into the letter... We're going to sense that there's a pretty strong Jewish influence within the church. There's a Greek influence, but there's a, also a pretty strong Jewish um, uh, influence. In the pre-Christian era, um, the um, people in that area worshipped river spirits probably with the two rivers coming together and things. Uh, so they would have been I guess, in a sense, a bit more animistic. Now, Paul's relationship to this church is interesting. Uh, pretty much all of uh, Paul's other letters involve churches that he planted. Um, that's not true with Colossae. Uh, there's no record, well we know he, uh, there's no record of him planning it. We're, there's also no record of him ever visiting this church. It seems that it probably, if anything, was an offshoot of his church plant in Ephesus. Which again was, uh, Ephesus was uh, about 100 miles to the west of Colossae. Now Warren Wearsby in his commentary kind of theorizes some things here. He says, when we examine the persons involved in the prison uh, correspondence of Paul, <clears throat> we can just about put together how the Colossian church was founded. During Paul's ministry in Ephesus, at least two men from Colossae were brought to faith in Jesus Christ, Epaphras and Philemon. And um, he cites Philippians 19 or something, uh, or no, Philemon 19 uh, as evidence with regards to Philemon. Epaphras apparently was one of the key founders of the church in Colossae, for he shared the gospel with his friends there. We know that from Colossians 1.7. He also had a ministry in the cities of Hierapolis and Laodicea. So, what Wearsby is saying, the best we can kind of uh, figure out is that these two men who were natives of Colossae, citizens of Colossae, were in Ephesus at the time Paul planted the church there. They were led to Christ through the ministry of Paul. They then traveled back to their hometown and were instrumental in bringing uh, that church into being. And, you know, whether Paul planted it himself or not, it was important to him. And we see that as he writes this letter. Now, what caused Paul there in prison 
to sit down and have this letter penned to the church at Colossae. Well, there's really almost no debate over the fact that it was prompted by false teaching. I guess we can be thankful for false teaching in the sense that most of the New Testament was written in response to false teaching. Um, If uh, the false teaching hadn't arisen, a lot of this stuff would have never been written. But it was because there were challenges to the truth that... Uh, Paul and Peter and and James and other sat down and wrote out for us what the truth is, and so uh, there's n- uh, almost no debate over the fact that false teaching prompted this letter. But there's a huge amount of debate over uh, what uh, false teaching prompted it. Now. One writer estimated that during the 19th and 20th century, there were 40 different theories put forward as to uh, the false teaching uh, that Paul was uh, seeking to counteract. And again, that's because we have so little uh, outside evidence uh, regarding what was going on uh, in uh, Colossae. So I said we haven't, don't have any historical writings. We don't have any archaeological finding. So we don't know much about what was happening religiously in Colossae at this time. And so what you end up having to do is <clears throat> kind of read between the lines <laughs> in Colossians. You look at what Paul says in response, and you figure, okay, if this is Paul's response, this must be basically what they, they were being told. And so you just have to build your case out of what Paul uh, writes. So... Uh, You know, as people have done this, a lot of commentators have really struggled to take Paul's statements and try to make them the response to a known theological system of the day. They they want to, and there's a number of different ones, and I won't go into all these different systems. There's Essenism, there's Merkaba mysticism, there's the Greek pagan cults, there's Nos or early form of Gnosticism, (coughs) full-blown Gnosticism didn't come about till the second century, but you know, a lot want to try to take one of these. And say, you know, this is what was being taught in Colossae. This is what Paul's trying to counteract. The problem is, Paul's uh, response really doesn't fit any of them perfectly. And, you know, a while back I was reading um, in a theological journal, a fellow by the name of Wayne House, And he really sets forth, I think, a a pretty significant explanation. He says, no single view has arguments 
that can lead to its being endorsed exclusive, uh, exclusively. It's best to recognize that both Jewish and Gentile elements were present in the Colossian heresy, many of which were generally shared by the populace in the highly charged world of the first century, especially in the syncretistic and Hellenistic mood of Achaia and Western Asia Minor. Many of the elements developed into Gnosticism of the second century, but with a far more elaborate philosophical religious views than are found in Colossians. Then this statement, he sums it up. The most one can say of the error in Colossians is that it was a syncretism, a blending together of Jewish, Gentile, and Christian features that diminished the all-sufficiency of Christ's salvation and his personal preeminence. It says the most we can say is that there is a blending together of a lot of different teachings that uh, marked that, that period of time and that part of the world. And the, this blend of teachings t- took away from the all-sufficiency of Christ. Christ was not enough. And it took away from his personal preeminence. Now, we can't determine uh, exactly the specific religious system, but we can determine from what Paul writes some of the key elements of the error. And I'll just go over these briefly. We'll see them as we get into the letter. First of all, uh, the church was being hit very heavily with a lot of the traditions of men. Paul in chapter 2 verse 8 describes a philosophy uh, a philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. You know, they were looking at a lot of their traditions and their traditions were taking precedence over Christ. It was taking precedence over his person. It was taking precedence over his redemptive uh, uh, work. And that false philosophy, according to Colossians 2.18, claimed to have this knowledge that the average Christian hadn't yet discovered. And it took away from the all-sufficiency of Christ. Secondly, the we do know from what Paul wrote that there was a strong uh, sense of asceticism involved in what was being said. And asceticism has to do with <coughs> denying yourself of certain things. You know, we uh, we conquer the sin by you know not doing this, not doing that, denying ourselves of this or that. And in chapter 2, verse 21, Paul speaks of those who were telling them, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You know, if you deny yourself these things, that's the key to really being able to be victorious in your life. (coughs) Excuse me. Thirdly, there probably was an early... Uh, view a Gnostic, uh, form of the Gnostic view of uh, the evil of matter. Later 
in the second century, the Gnostics sought to divide spirit from, uh, from matter. And the spirit could be good, but, but the matter was evil. And so whatever the body did was, was evil. And the Gnostics later took it either into strong asceticism, <clears throat> where since our body's evil, we've got to punish it. Or extreme libertinism, which basically said, since the spirit's good, it doesn't matter what our body does. <laughs> our body can go out and do anything it wants to do, and it doesn't alter the spirit. So there was an early concept of that, you know, a dichotomy between spirit uh, and, and matter. Uh, seen in the church of Colossae. There also was a Jewish influence. In chapter 2 verse 16 uh, talks about uh, uh, therefore let no one uh, act as your judge in regard to food, drink, in respect to festival or new moon or a Sabbath day. Seeming like the the uh, Jewish uh, influence was bringing in the dietary restriction, uh, the feast days, uh, the Sabbath. Uh, in Colossians 2.11, he speaks of having a circumcision made without hands, which again seems to imply that in the church at Colossae, they were even seeking to bring in circumcision. Uh, that for a man to be saved, he had to be circumcised. Um, fifthly, while this false um, doctrine didn't deny Christ outward, it did seek to dethrone him. It diminished him. It devalued him. It, uh, Wayne House writes, no matter what is held concerning the heresy's origin, Paul's response in the letter addressed a diminished view of Jesus Christ. From the dualistic viewpoint, that of matter and spirit, on the evil of matter, it follows that giving preeminence to the physical person of Jesus Christ would pose serious problems to the philosophical um, system of the heresy. And then finally... Or, or sixthly, I mean, rather than finding Christ to be the sole source of righteousness, uh, this system seemed to uh, seek to attain righteousness through asceticism and self-abuse. Uh, it led really to the believers giving up their freedom in Christ and really uh, coming into the bondage of some of the elements of the world. And then finally, this system was marked by exclusivity only the enlightened could experience uh, what they had you know it wasn't something that was available for every believer it was only for the enlightened few now anybody who studies Ephesians and Colossians will realize that they are very similar W.H. Uh, Griffith Thomas writes in further consideration of the Apostle's purpose in writing, it is especially interesting to notice the relationship of this epistle to that addressed to the Ephesian Christians because the likeness between them is so striking. 
As one writer puts it, out of 95 verses in Colossians, 78 have a marked resemblance to Ephesians, or 82% of Colossians resembles Ephesians. While out of 155 verses in Ephesians, 78 resemble Colossians. So about 50% of Ephesians looks very much like Colossians. But this is important. The particular character of the resemblance is more striking. The same topics are treated in each with a very significant difference in application. In Colossians, we are shown Christ in the church, while in Ephesians, we are shown the church, uh, is how, uh, the church is seen to be in Christ. One writer has thus stated the comparison. In Ephesians, the church is the primary object, and the thought passed upward to Christ as the head of the church. In Colossians, Christ is the primary object, and the thought passed downward to the church as the body of Christ. And so Griffith Thomas goes on to write, Together they represent the highest, fullest concept of Christianity. Just as uh, Romans tells us how to enter into fellowship with Christ through the gospel, so Ephesians and Colossians tell us how to abide therein. First we come out of bondage, then we are brought into the banqueting house. Now again, uh, the close resemblance from the letter probably has a lot to do with them being written about the same time, but addressing different issues. And a lot of the same truths were important, but they, they were, you might say, packaged differently based on uh, what was being faced uh, by uh, that uh, church. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with Paul using the same basic truths to two different churches. Uh, if it's applicable in both uh, settings, there's nothing wrong with him doing that, and that's what he does seem to do. Now, just one other thing before we close, and that's I want to look at the. Oh, let me go. That's what Colossi uh, looks like today. It's that mound of dirt out there that nobody's ever uh, excavated. It's in a politically sensitive area in Turkey. Uh, there's a group that wants to excavate it, but they never have been able to get the permission to do so. Now, one other thing, and that's the theme. Again, I was when I was taught in Bible college, you know, studying through a book, to try to, to uh, recognize what the theme is. In, in basically, in one sentence, what is the theme that runs through the entire letter? What is it that pulls the entire thing together? And here's what I see the theme as being. That the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things. Paul, very early, is going to develop the preeminence of Christ. And that's where a lot of the doctrinal portion is. He's going to really be looking at the fact that there is no one higher than Christ. There is no one who can add to what Christ has done. <clears throat> and then, once he has laid that foundation, he's going to show Christ to be the sole source of the Christian life. 
that in him we have everything, as Peter says, everything necessary for life and godliness. It's all there. Yes, Jonelle. Uh, I just want to say the thing that comes to mind in this is as you're talking, I'm thinking about what we're facing this very day in our world, in our country, in our churches. Uh, much the same. It feels way worse. And all, but I'm just saying this whole thing of not acknowledging Christ, of not giving Him freedom. Yeah. So many, even in churches, don't know much about. Yeah. Past salvation, and I so yeah. many say that to me that uh, the Lord brings my way. But I was just thinking how I, I just pray that all of us will so want to know Him, and that God will use you in teaching us in the weeks to come. But this is a powerful thing yeah. we have to be right in this world, yeah. and so it's just a very timely. Sure. And the scriptures are timely. Uh, And uh, we'll see that there's a lot of uh, comparable things today. Okay, we're out of time. We're going to have to get ready for the main service. But let me close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this rich book. And Lord, I just pray that in the weeks ahead that it'll uh, leave its mark in each of our lives. Uh, First, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.